Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today on the podcast, I'm going to introduce to you someone who I've very, very recently met actually called Jolie, who I've been reading some of her amazing work over the last few months. And then last week, someone alerted me to a post where I was mentioned and read some really harrowing comments, actually. And I really, I reached out to her and said, let's do a podcast. And here we are on a Sunday morning recording the podcast. So thank you ever so much, Jolie, for coming today. Thank you very much for having me on this glorious, frosty Sunday morning. (laughs) Yes. So you are the founder of something called Pregnant Then Screwed, which obviously you can't listen to that or read that without thinking what's going on here. But as soon as you read it, I think most women will know exactly where you're coming from, which is a real shame, isn't it? But talk to me, why did you set this up then? So I set it up seven years ago. Because when I was four months pregnant with my first child, I told my employer that I was expecting. And the next day they sacked me by voicemail. And my employer was a children's charity. So it was quite the shock. And I found myself unemployed without an income and unable to pay my rent or put food on the table. And then I tried to do something about it. And discovered that accessing justice was almost impossible. It was completely taken out of my hands. There was nothing I could do. That's a really long story as to why I won't go into it. But essentially, women often find, you know, we know that 54,000 women a year are pushed out of their jobs for getting pregnant. That's one in nine pregnant women lose their job. It's a woman at 10 minutes gets pushed out of her job because she's dead to get pregnant. And 77% of working mums encounter some form of discrimination in the workplace. And many of them think, you know, oh, well, this is illegal. I'll do something about it. And then they realise that it's almost Mm. impossible. It's just so difficult. The justice system does not work for women at all. I was so furious that firstly, that it had happened, obviously, when I was at my most vulnerable, my boss had pushed me out. But secondly, that then the justice system completely failed me. And it sort of ate away at me for two years. So I had my baby and I was going to parent groups and talking to other mums. And so many other mums had these awful stories. And it just sort of built, this rage built inside of me until it was International Women's Day 2015. And I'd come up with the name Pregnant Then Screwed. It was going to be far worse than that to begin with. I'm sure you can <laughs> but I decided to slightly tame it down. And then I sort of launched it as a website on International Women's Day and immediately got loads of attention on it people saying, you know, commenting on it, people looking at the website. And then it took a while to get a number of stories, which I finally did. And it's just sort of mushroomed from there. So it was just a blog originally for people to tell their stories of pregnancy and maternity discrimination anonymously. But then, of course, people wanted help and support. And so slowly I just sort of added these services and different, as I sort of found solutions to different problems. And now it's a fully blown charity with seven staff, 120 volunteers it's international and we helped 80,000 women 
get the support that they needed last year. So it's gone from just a blog to this. And it was just, okay. I never meant for this to happen. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I'm wow. happy that it, that it did, but it just shows the need that's out there and the fact that this sort of discrimination happens all the time and there's very little that women feel they can do to have power in that situation. Yeah, it's so sad, isn't it? And I think the more work I do, it's about women not having a voice or when they have a voice, it's not listened to. And even I know when I moved down from Manchester a long time ago in 1999 and I went for a job and it was a full-time GP job. And I said to them at the interview, I probably shouldn't say this, but I have been married now a couple of years and we are planning a family. So how would you look at if I went part-time, if in the future I became pregnant? And they said, oh, we're so child-friendly here. Brilliant, brilliant. You know, wouldn't be a problem, Louise, at all. And I was offered the job, which was great. And then a year or so later, I became pregnant. And I said to them, oh, could I reduce my hours when I come back? And they said, oh, yes, yes, you could just reduce the number of days, but you have to work 8 till 6.30. And I said, but I can't find a nursery. I live half an hour away that's open, half seven till... Could I just not you know, reduce my hours in the day and maybe work, you know, spread them over three or four days. And there was just no way, absolutely no, that's never been done in the history of the practice, can't do it. So I just resigned when I was, you know, 18 weeks pregnant. I just thought I can't work for these people, regardless of what happens with my pregnancy. I just thought this is really, you know, and you'd like to think things have changed, but I I don't think, but it, it is part of this bigger picture, isn't it, Jolie, that we're just women, like, who cares? We're replaceable, does it matter? And I feel really sad about that because we're individuals and you wouldn't treat men like that. And why should anyone be treated like that, actually? But it happens when we're pregnant often, as you know. But then it also happens when we're perimenopausal and menopausal. And we know around 10% of women leave their jobs because of memory problems, anxiety, fatigue. But also we know from studies we've done a lot of women are not going for promotion or they're changing their jobs or they're going part-time. And that's just hemorrhaging workforce, isn't it? Yeah, it's really bad for the economy. You know, if you're looking at mm. it through the lens of a government and cold, yes. hard cash and you want to rebuild your economy, we've got over 600,000 people who have become economically inactive over the last couple of years. And the Chancellor keeps talking about these economically inactive people and how we can get them back to work. And he never mentions childcare. No, no. doesn't think about this through the lens of mothers and the barriers that they encounter, nor does he mention menopause and the challenges that women face when they get older. It's a complete blind spot with the government's planning. And all of these problems are systemic for women in the labour market because the labour market was built around there being one income earner in a household. And so there'd be a mm. woman kids and there'd be a man that goes out to work and we haven't adapted the labour market to the fact that in almost every family there are now two earners in a household and you have to have two earners to keep a roof over your head you can't afford to not and it's similar I'm sure with menopause and the fact that there aren't the trials there isn't the impetus to really understand what is happening with women and their bodies because it's just not seen as important as men's bodies no, and, and it's complicated and I, it's, well that's it you know it's a bit scary talking to a hormonal woman isn't it because they might shout at you so but I think there's all this misunderstanding as well we know Amanda Pritchard for the NHS put a document together a couple of weeks ago talking about flexible working in the NHS and how we can support women through their menopause and one of my 
friends who's a consultant anaesthetist actually wrote to the Telegraph to say, how can I as an anaesthetist do more work at home? You know, I'm intubating people who are going for a surgery. You know, you just can't do it. And, And actually, it's not about reducing hours because that means reduced pay, reduced identity. And even those women who are working part time, if your brain isn't working, it doesn't matter whether you're doing one hours or 40 hours a week, you're not going to do the same job. So mm. it's about how to provide the right support and treatment as well, especially when it comes to the perimenopause and menopause, and which is just not there. No one's joining up the dots at all. You know, women working part time, often it's because we're looking after children, but often it's because we're not getting the right help or not being listened to and not having individualized solutions because there are ways aren't there that we could be far more productive if we could change our hours slightly or change um, the days that we work because you know there's no doubt in the term time a lot of us can work a lot better a lot more productively than in the holidays and you know some jobs obviously you can't change but others you can I'm sure people could do a lot more couldn't they well yeah exactly I mean and employers often say to me what should I do? How am I a better employer for mothers? And I say, just listen to them. Mm. It's not rocket science. Just like give them a forum to be able to have a conversation about what the problems are that they're experiencing in your workplace so that you can enable those that have less power to contribute to that conversation. So you're getting all levels of staff and then give them your ear like allow them to tell you really honestly and brutally what is going wrong and then fix it (laughs) you know it's not that complicated and they sort of you know employees sort of forget that they look at they out try and outsource these problems often without actually just talking to the people that are affected by it and it you know again it tends to be men who are employers it's men that are in more senior positions within organizations And there's so much that still needs to be done in the workplace, by the government, in healthcare settings, that it means that women are just sort of a forgotten cohort often, and yet we're 50% of the population. Yeah. So, just when things get really depressing, that's bad enough talking about that, but just talk me through this post that you put on and had this overwhelming response I mean I know not a lot of your post gets responses but the one that brought me to reach out to you so I I've been on my journey of perimenopause which started I mean I said in the post it started three years ago I think it probably started even before that and I was getting really bad symptoms of brain fog and headaches and they would start after my period so as soon as my period started it would start and it would last for up to two weeks and at points it got so debilitating that I could barely move I couldn't think I couldn't speak and I spend a lot of time talking to people I do interviews Mm. I talks in front of big groups of people about the motherhood penalty you know radio and tv and so it was really affecting my work and Mm. You know, I remember sitting on my sofa a few years ago and just feeling unable to move, unable to really function at all. And then it would pass and then I would feel okay again. And then the anxiety started, quite crippling anxiety, where I would feel really awkward when I saw people that I knew and didn't really want to go out anymore. And I remember friends coming over here one night and I felt so uncomfortable and so awkward and anxious 
I had to put the telly on for a bit to sort of ease myself into the situation and calm myself down before I could even sort of have conversations with them, which was very unusual. It wasn't like me at all. Mm. Really heavy periods that would bleed through my trousers really quickly. And jaw ache. I would get terrible jaw ache for like two weeks of the month, which was a sort of really odd symptom. Gosh, yeah. And then night sweats that were just disgusting. And I would wake up absolutely dripping, you know, all down my cleavage. And so I initially, I just thought there's something wrong with me. What's wrong with me? I must be allergic to something is what I kept thinking. So I went to a nutritionist and they tried all sorts. They did like, made me do a big poo sample and then they, you know, made me change my diet and did all sorts of stuff. None of it worked and it cost me a fortune. So I, I went to the doctor and I said, I've got all these symptoms and I don't know what's wrong with me. And they said, okay, well, it's obviously related to your menstrual cycle. Let's do a blood mm. test, see what we can find. So they did blood tests. Two or three weeks later, called back and said, oh, no, nothing wrong with you. So I said, great. Okay, thanks very much. I mean, what do you say when someone says, nothing wrong with you? You're making it up is what you feel like they're saying. And she suggested that I go on the mini pill to calm my periods down, which I did. And I went completely crackers. And I had a nonstop period. My period just didn't stop when I was on it really heavy. And I was crying all the time and felt just really bonkers and it took me a while to realize that it was the mini pill that was causing it mm. and when I realized I threw that in the bin stopped it registered again at the doctor's for another call 30 days it takes each time you register at the doctor's to get a call back so they called me back and then I said well that's not worked I don't really know what else to do and you know again there was just no real conversation about menopause or perimenopause and it wasn't until actually I met a woman who's written a book about the menopause, who also worked on the Davina McCall documentary, Kate, I've totally forgotten her surname, but I met her at an event. Kate Muir, probably. Kate Muir, that's right, yeah. And I told her, you know, poor woman, I sort of collared her and cornered her and told her my symptoms. And she was like, well, you are very clearly perimenopausal. So mm. I thought, oh, okay, well, I really need to push this with the doctor. I went back to the doctor. Another blood test, absolutely fine, no problem with you. And then I met a GP who told me the blood tests do not identify whether you're menopausal or not. So this was a revelation to me. So all this time, they've been giving me these blood tests and not telling me well, that your yeah. hormones jump around like crickets all over the place. And it depends when you have the blood test as to what they identify. So by this point, you know, we're a sort of over a year in of me trying to get some help. And by this point, I am absolutely convinced it's perimenopause. And so I registered with the new mm. which somebody recommended. So I had the appointment, was told I was ticking every, pretty much every box, you know, yes, you are perimenopausal. And I remember saying to the doctor, how do you know it's perimenopause and not depression? And she said, I don't. But what I do know is you tick every box and I am really confident that I'm going to give you this medication and you are going to feel better after it. I said, okay, that's good enough for me. So she put me on the gel and progesterone and it was going great. But I am the most forgetful human 
you have ever met in your entire life. Like I can literally, I will have lost these glasses before the end of this podcast recording. Like I, I just lose things and I forget things. So I thought I'm not going to remember to take the progesterone when I should do. I was diarising it, but I thought I'll, something will go mm. wrong. So I thought, right, well, I'll get the coil fitted because I've heard the coil's quite good, the marina coil, so that I don't have to think about it. So I finally got the coil fitted and I felt dreadful, absolutely mm. awful. And I called 111 because I was panicking because I couldn't, at first I thought I was burnt out. So I messaged my staff and I said, I am really burnt out. I need to just stop working now. And then I thought, hold on, this, is, this isn't burnout. I know what burnout feels like. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get up. I, I was in bed. I was crying all the time. I just felt horrendous. And I ended up getting a call with the doctor. The doctor told me there's no reason why the coil would be making me feel unwell. And if I wanted it out, it would be 12 days time before I could get it out. And she said, but I think there's something else wrong with you. I don't think it's anything to do with the coil. So I think by the time we get to those 12 days, you will not want it out because it's good. You need to have it in. It seems like it's the right thing for you. So um, I kept it in and then I did start to feel a bit better. And I thought, oh, maybe it is me. Maybe I've, you know, maybe I wasn't well. I did start to feel a bit better and then I crashed again. So I, I started feeling a bit better and then I crashed again. Yes, and then it. And I was about to go to the Labour Party conference to do a talk at the Labour Party conference. And I thought, I can't go feeling like this because I feel crackers. And so I tried mm. to boil out myself. I thought, I've got no option. So I Googled how to do it and I spent all morning before I went to Liverpool desperately trying to get this coil out of me. And my friend Kat was meeting me at the Labour Party conference and she turned up with a pair of rubber gloves. And (laughs) she said, and she had her coil in a plastic bag to show me what it looked like. And she said, right, let's get back to the hotel room. I'll get this coil out of you. And I was like, Kat, I love you, but no. This is too much. You are a friend. I'm not sure I want you fishing around in my vaginal canal. That's just probably crossing a line. So we decided not to do that, and I kept the coil in. And then finally the appointment came. And the woman that was taking it out said to me, there's no way this is causing you problems, and I think this is a mistake that you you are going to have it out. Anyway, I said, I don't care. You get this thing out of me. So she did, and immediately I felt better. And then I did Mm. Googling around and discovered that the progesterone that your clinic had put me on is body identical progesterone. And the progesterone in the coil is... It's synthetic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really important to know that there's a difference. And and there's so much of this story, obviously, that should be thought about and unpicked even. But, you know, you've made the diagnosis yourself because you're telling me, even if I wasn't a menopause specialist or even a doctor that you have changes that are fitting in with your periods. So it's got to be some hormonal change. And what's really difficult sometimes with women is knowing, is it PMS? Is it PMDD? Is it perimenopause? Actually, all of these are just labels. It is a hormonal changes that are occurring in the body. And often our hormones change 
for many years before our periods stop. So there's lots of women in their 30s and 40s and even younger are having some hormonal changes. And I'm hearing more and more from various groups that I go to to say it's outrageous that women in their 20s and 30s think that they might be perimenopausal. And I sort of think, well, it's not actually outrageous because one in 100 women under the age of 40 have an early menopause. That means there's one in 100 women in their 30s who are likely to be perimenopausal. But we know that PMS is really common. Most women will have some symptoms that change through their periods, mm. through their menstrual cycle rather. And they can just get exaggerated as we get older. So yeah. some women are very responsive to changes in estrogen levels. Some people are very responsive to a drop in testosterone levels. And some people, it's the progesterone. And there are many women who have PMS or psychological symptoms related to the perimenopause as well, who are progesterone intolerant. But progesterone, as you say, there are different types. So the natural progesterone, often people tolerate better. But the synthetic progestogens that are in the contraceptive pills, all the contraceptive pills have synthetic progestogens. There are different types, though. And then the mini pill, the implants, the injection for contraception. And like you say, the marina coil, they all have different types of progestogens. So progestogen just means it's a synthetic progesterone. So it's been biochemically changed. So it doesn't lock onto the receptors in the cells quite as easily as the natural progesterone, the body identical progesterone does. Many women find it doesn't make any difference. They benefit and it doesn't cause problems. But certainly there are women, and, and some studies say it's at around one in 10 women, so not insignificant, who have some psychological changes. And, you know, what you're describing is very common for someone who's got progesterone intolerance. With the marina coil, the dose is very, very low. And lots of people say, well, you don't get any systemic absorption, as in it doesn't go in the bloodstream and doesn't affect the rest of the body. Well, there are women who are very sensitive that it, even a little bit in the bloodstream, as in what probably ha happened to you, is still going to cause problems. And for a lot of women, they do feel a bit low or a bit flat for the first three to six months, and then they feel fine. And the marina coil, as you know, is licensed for five years. So if women don't feel too bad, sticking with it can be a good thing because when it settles down, you can imagine the concentration is highest when it's new and fresh and then it sort of stables and reduces. But there are a lot of women, I spoke to a psychiatrist recently who actually did pull out her own marina because she was suicidal and it was at the weekend and she knew it was her marina coil and she just, she was really scared, but she had insight and she uh, pulled it out herself and she said within literally minutes she started to feel better mm. and you know it can happen and I think what's really sad is that when you're not believed or understood it makes it even more difficult especially when you've got a, a mental psychological symptoms then you think well maybe I am sensationalizing it or maybe I am going mad or maybe like you say maybe I'm having a breakdown and that's really really scary actually and I always feel with women who I speak to like I have no idea whether their hormones are related which hormones they are or whether it is that they're having a breakdown how do I know because there's no diagnostic test I can't do a blood test as you know your hormone levels were fine but at three in the morning when you're having a night sweat they probably aren't fine but no one's going to come and do a blood test then so then we go on symptoms and a lot of uncertainty but I often say to women well let's just balance your hormones and then see what's left. And some women even 
actually still have side effects with the body identical hormones. They're very, very sensitive to them. And I personally have progesterone intolerance. And when I was starting to take progesterone as part of my HRT when I was perimenopausal, I had three or four days a month where I could have just shut the doors, shut my clinic, walked away from everything. And I just thought it was at the same time as I was was setting up my clinic. So I thought, well, I'm just like you, a bit burnt out. And then my husband said, but Louise, it's when you're coming towards the end of those two weeks of those pills. Look at you, you're lying on the bed, you're not even moving, you're not interesting to talk to. It's only eight o'clock and you're telling me you want to go to bed. Something else is going on. And, and then you sort of think, ah, oh, right, I'll maybe try not taking the pills or you can insert them vaginally to reduce the absorption. And some women that helps, but even I found that I could have still walked away from life with that. And so it's very hard sometimes to work out the right dose of the, because you have to balance the estrogen and progesterone and testosterone to protect the lining of the womb. Mm. And occasionally women actually have a hysterectomy because they need estrogen and testosterone if they take testosterone as well but they can't tolerate any progesterone at all. Yeah. So I was going to say, what do you do if you have complete intolerance to progesterone? Yeah, and, you know, I have got some women who do have a hysterectomy because of progesterone intolerance, and that sounds really quite dramatic, but I've had a patient recently who was diagnosed with premature ovarian insufficiency when she was 34, and she'd given up her job as a police officer. She'd tried some bioidentical hormones, which were just horrendous. And she'd had managed to have a donor egg, actually. So she'd had one pregnancy and then she adopted a child and was really high up in the police. And then her life fell apart with her hormones. And then she started to feel a lot better. But every time she took progesterone, she felt dreadful again. And then we tried to reduce the amount of progesterone, but then she was getting bleeding. So the gynecologist said, well, we'll do an ultrasound, a hysteroscopy and a biopsy every six months, as long as you're on HRT. Well, at this time, she was 42. And she said, well, I'm going to take it forever. I can't be subjected to a hysteroscopy and biopsy because I'm sure you've heard or women listening might realise they can be very uncomfortable and painful and intrusive as well. Yeah. And cost money to the NHS. So she said, well, I don't want that. And they said, well, you're going to have to increase your progesterone. And she said, but I can't because every time I do, I feel suicidal. And without HRT, I'm suicidal. So I can't be without it. And I'm young and I need it for my bones, heart and brain and future health. So then she had a hysterectomy and I reviewed her recently and she's just so happy. (sighs) And it seems like a big thing to have a hysterectomy. And of course, it is not an operation you would do first line. But if you think... When I was doing obstetrics training in the 1999 and when I was training as a doctor in the 80s, lots of women would come in with very heavy periods. Thinking back, they were all perimenopausal because they were often in their late 40s. And people would do hysterectomies for heavy bleeding. If these women didn't have a hysterectomy, they would have had to wait probably two, three, four, five years until they were menopausal. So you're doing an operation to get them through the next three or four years because marina coils weren't around then. So it was a lot harder to manage heavy periods. Now moving forwards, we've got the marina coils. Great. So there's less hysterectomies for heavy bleeding. But if someone like this lady has had a hysterectomy for her menopause, you're not just helping her for three or four years, it'll probably be helping her for 30 or 40 years. So it's actually even more cost effective. So, Mm. but I think the important thing is knowing there's always choice. And I think, you know, reading your comments from this post is, 
just makes me so sad because women are not being listened to. There's no one to say. And I think as a doctor, I always say to people, whatever treatment, whether it's a blood pressure treatment or a HRT treatment, if this doesn't work, we can go to this. And I think sometimes just knowing that there are options is really, really useful, isn't it? Because if you know you're at the end of the road, then what do you do? Yeah, and then you just feel completely helpless. Mm. The thing that I found really shocking was this arbitrary age 44. So when I finally did get the doctor to talk to me about properly about perimenopause and admit that the blood tests weren't necessarily the right indicators to whether I was menopausal, she said, but you're 43, so I can't prescribe you with HRT. And I was, you know, 43 and a half. And I said to her, that, but that's ridiculous. Like, that is absolutely, mm. can you not see that that's madness? Because, of course, everybody's <laughs> body is different. And I'm yeah, very close and that's to not. So, and I heard that so often in the comments as well. Yes, and I think, you know, I work out of the NICE guidance, which are now seven years old, and we've got the International Menopause Society guidance that are six years old, but it doesn't matter. They're still the most current guidance for the menopause, and they're very clear that there isn't an lower age limit they talk quite a lot about premature ovarian insufficiency and also they do mention perimenopause as well so there's no one's too young to be considered for hormones and I think it's really crucial and this is one of the reasons that I've worked so hard on the information that I've written and given out freely to people is that women can then become advocates and really like you're doing with pregnant then screwed allowing people to have the information then they can go back you know obviously for you it's the employers but for for me it's going back to a different maybe or or even the same healthcare professional and say look actually that's not true or could you show me where you're getting your evidence from and I'm happy to be challenged but what I have read from the guidance is that there is no you know age or there is no reason why I can't try but it it's very hard and it, it just shouldn't be this exhausting for women to be listened to. No, it really shouldn't. And it's that's the hardest bit when you really are fighting your corner against a medical professional and mm. you, you feel deferent to them, of course, because they, and so you should, you know, in many regards, because they're the trained people. But certainly for me and certainly for many of the people that commented, the information they're getting is just not accurate. Yeah. And so you have to go off and find your own information and then go back and have these conversations with them. And of course, some people are not receptive to that at all as well. Medical professionals sometimes don't like you to, you know, challenge them on those those issues. Yeah, but I think, you know, I love being challenged and I'm very happy and I think it's really important that we learn from our patients all the time and what's concerning them and what they want and it's not for us to say what people can and can't do and I think often when we feel threatened it's because we're in an area of uncertainty or an area without the right knowledge and so I think positioning it in the right way you know making sure that you're respectful to healthcare professionals but say I'm finding it very frustrating actually and this is contrary to other information that I've read and is there someone else in the practice that might be able to help me because Mm. I don't want to fall out with you over this then keeps that respect going because some people have actually helped by writing a letter to say to the consultation I'm going to leave now because I'm not getting anywhere and then write a letter to that doctor or nurse or pharmacist or whoever it is you're having difficulty with and then saying, is it possible for you to ring me when you've considered this information that I've read from the NICE guidance or whatever is relevant? And and that can help because it's like, you know, 
for those of you who've got teenage children, there's no point arguing if everyone's worked up. It's better to diffuse and go back. But yeah. it's essential that women do get listened to because we're talking about lifelong improvement if you get the right treatment. Yeah. And that's really important. How can we change the system? What do you think needs to happen for menopausal symptoms to be firstly be better understood but also for women to be listened to when they go to the GP and get the right treatment I think a lot of it is about training and education yeah and big question sorry yeah no 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 it's fine a lot of it's about training and education of all healthcare professionals and I think you know allowing women to understand what's going on is number one because I think medicine has really changed where it's so much more patient-centered so allowing women to be in the center of the consultation is huge whether it's about their pregnancy their PMS their endometriosis their migraines whatever or their perimenopause or menopause and then it's the education for healthcare professionals and it is happening with younger healthcare professionals Um, they're a lot more aware But it's also making sure that the right colleges are involved and the government and NHS England. And it's it's a huge amount of work because it's a big culture shift and it's changing people's perceptions of what the perimenopause and menopause is. And so many people just see it as something that causes a few hot flushes and stops periods. They don't see the bigger picture. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. But I think in the meantime, the most important thing is allowing women to know what's going on and and give them tools to try and get help. So for you mentioning or even talking about the topic was overwhelming. But again, it's showing that women need a platform, they need a voice and they need to be listened to. So I'm very grateful for you spending some time on a Sunday morning, Jodie. But before we finish, three take home tips. So three things that you've learned from, you know, your experience of the perimenopause that maybe you could impart for others. So they've bit more in control and hopefully don't suffer like you have probably first thing I would say is talk to as many people as you can about it because I found out the majority of my information from just having conversations with a variety of different people I got so obsessed with it that I it was the first thing I would start talking about to pretty much woman Mm. I met who I thought could potentially be of a perimenopausal age But that's where I got most of my useful information from. And that's essentially how I ended up diagnosing myself because of all these different conversations I was having with different women. I think it used to be such a taboo subject and people never used to talk about it. And it's not now. And people want to have information. And I found people really relish talking about it. And we learn from each other. And that can be really powerful. Probably second tip would be, you know, keep going. Don't give up. You will Mm -hmm. in the face doctors or other health professionals who will tell you things that aren't necessarily accurate and you know yourself how you're feeling and if you're not getting the help that you need keep reading and keep pushing for what it is that you you actually need and thirdly if you have the marina coil and you feel absolutely mental (laughs) then it's the marina coil (laughs) get the thing out (laughs) <laughs> probably not by your friend though no. go and see a healthcare no, don't professional get, don't get cats to come over with rubber gloves go back to your health <laughs> professional I think yeah absolutely and I think the most important thing is just if you feel something whether it's the coil or the tablets or just the way you're feeling isn't right or if you think it might be related to your hormones then just be persistent and eventually hopefully you'll find someone that will help so I'm very grateful for your time today and um 
I'm looking forward to seeing how the response to what you're doing, but also how you're just changing the face for women going forwards, because it's so important to start young and, and keep the conversation going. So I feel that what you're doing, all these women who have been pregnant are guaranteed to become perimenopausal or menopausal after. So it's uh, doing this sort of joined up thinking, I think is really exciting. So thank you again. Thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, literally your clinic saved my sanity. So I am oh. enormously grateful to you. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Julie. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, please visit my website, balance-menopause.com or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play. Music